This podcast is for informational purposes only and does not constitute legal, tax, investment, financial, or other advice. It is not intended to cause or induce breach of an existing agency agreement. The goal of this podcast since day one is to provide the best information on the Vancouver real estate market at no cost to you, the listeners. To that end, we'd like to thank the following sponsors. This podcast is sponsored by Marcon, a local family-owned and managed real estate development and construction company that's been around for nearly four decades. Marcon is not only committed to high-quality construction, but it also is making a positive impact in the communities in which it builds all across the Lower Mainland. We want to highlight two incredible Marcon projects. Elmwood, a 38-story tower located at Burquitlam's most important intersection, Como Lake Avenue and Clark Road. This landmark tower will feature 335 condominiums, over 37,000 square feet of office and retail space, and almost 20,000 square feet of amenity space. Elmwood has been incredibly popular with 80% sold currently, but they still have a great selection of junior one-bedroom all the way to three-bedroom homes remaining. Check out markon.ca slash Elmwood for more. And Matt, we are also excited about Sone House, Markon's newest community in West Coquitlam. With 165 homes ranging from junior one beds to three beds, Sone House offers the perfect West Coast aesthetic with a more nuanced Nordic-inspired design. Register today at markon.ca slash Sonehouse. That's S-O-E-N-H-A-U-S. Or you can learn more at markon.ca or follow them at Instagram at markonhomes. Markon, building for life. Hello? 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 This is the Vancouver Weather State Podcast. And welcome back to Vancouver Real Estate Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Scalina. And I'm your host, Matt Scalina. And Matt, today we've got a phenomenal episode on this resilient podcast, uh, which is about resilience. We are a resilient. We are a resilient. I used to call us a, an upstart. Uh, I guess <laughs> that's no longer the case. I feel like we're, uh, we're, we're <laughs> almost at the retirement phase. Yeah, we're in the free fall, <laughs> free fall position here. With no shoot, um, no, yeah, it's uh, it's definitely not an upstart podcast. I, I actually was looking at uh, somebody. We've actually got a few new reviews on our podcast recently, which uh, I was I was reading as I always do, and I noticed that we are now almost at the five year mark. Wow, that is resilience. Yeah, I know it's uh, there. We're just a couple fresh faced Scalinas on this uh, yeah, when we first no started kidding. this thing, and now we're both uh, well. Ten uh, pounds heavier than I was three weeks ago. Yeah, a few more gray hairs. <laughs> yeah, you know this thing. I, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm glad we've, we've contributed to flattening the curve, but we haven't flattened anything on me. You know what? This is. I, I was just thinking of tips. Anyone right. who works out is probably familiar with Strava. This is a, something that I think I'm not. I'm not saying anything uh, that's new to anyone except me. Right. Uh, I just downloaded Strava. This app is, it's going to change my life. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm jogging outside. 
Uh, I'm competing with uh, with some guys I know. So if you want to compete on short runs, <laughs> look me up on Strava. That's my tip this week. That is app that- is uh, it's it's going to change my life. It hasn't yet, but uh, but I got big plans. You know, I was just thinking about because you're running, holding your like iPhone Plus, <laughs> which which seems kind of crazy. <laughs> You should probably get an Apple Watch, or you should maybe... I don't know if they have an, another tracker. Maybe a uh, somebody has a tip for you, but there's probably a Garmin out there or something that you can... Uh that you can run with isn't it uncomfortable holding your phone no you know what it's actually it's actually not bad i'm also one of those guys that plays music without uh without earphones in <laughs> so when i run by you i got a teeny music coming from my iphone you're listening to music <laughs> good. on your run i'm like uh, the guy on the bike i'm like the guy on the bike flaring yeah but app. the the uh, guy on the bike has speakers coming out of his backpack you're just <laughs> no mine's out of mine's out of a teeny iphone wow that's uh, you're annoying. That's really, st- really, st- <laughs> really stepping up my game here. <laughs> but Adam, we're we're kind of getting off track here. Uh, we brought up resilience and how resilient we are in the podcast is and right. Strava and everything else because we have Jeb Brugman on the show today. Jeb Brugman is a leading practitioner and thinker on strategy and procession of innovation in the urban planning sphere. He's the founder and principal of Resilient Cities Catalyst, um, and he does he does keynotes all over the place. But really, what his work focuses on right now is looking at the 21st century, and especially in contrast to the 20th century, in the last half of the 20th century, where stability reigned. Right? Yes. We're still in the early stages of the 21st century, but we've had a number of crises, I guess, starting since September 11th, where Jeb's making the case that there's a lot more to come. We're in the dress rehearsal stage for a lot of, uh, a lot of upheaval here, and he's strategizing on how cities can become stronger in the face of all the upheaval that we're seeing this, this century. Yeah, Matt, and and it does remind me of our podcast, Becoming Stronger in the Face of Adversity, but on, on, just on, on a side note... <laughs> His work is recognized by the UN. It's uh, supported by the Rockefeller Foundation. Um, and, and Matt, you'll know the Rockefeller Foundation from the play on oh. words of Rockefeller Records. Yeah. Um, but no, in, in all seriousness, though, this is a phenomenal conversation. Jeb is uh, is a fantastic guest. I can't wait for that. But Matt, of course, we are sponsored by Oakland Realty. So shout out to Oakland Realty. And if you are a new agent or somebody considering making a move an agent making a move i would i would suggest um yeah, you got to check that. I, I would i would definitely check out slash join so adam what you want to do is you want to head to slash join and type in vrp2020 that's not vrep although if you put that in uh nobody knows sure, what will I'm happen sure. <laughs> yeah Yeah, but don't try it. Put in VRP 2020, you get a free mystery gift, and you get to learn about what I would say, hands down, is the best brokerage in the Lower Mainland. Yeah. So this mystery gift is great, don't get me wrong, but you get a lot more out of Oakland than this free mystery gift. You know what, you you call it a mystery gift, I call it a great big surprise, and uh, that's I have no idea what it is, but I know it's a surprise, and it's going to be one that uh, you're going to want to get. So head over to oakland.com slash join and sign up there, VRP2020. And Matt, without further ado, let's cut to our interview with Jeb Brugman. Absolutely. This is a phenomenal conversation. I think everyone's going to enjoy this one. (laughs) 
Okay, so we're here with Jeb Brugman, founding principal at Resilient Cities Catalyst. How are you doing, Jeb? Very good, Adam. How are you? Doing well, thanks. And thanks for uh, taking the time. That's great. And Matt, I should say hello to you too. I guess we're all three together, aren't we? That, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Good to see you, Jeb. Um, maybe can we start, Jeb, by uh, you telling our listeners a little bit about yourself and about Resilient Cities Catalyst? Yeah, sure. So um, people, uh, people in Vancouver would know me as a person who started uh, a, a large international organization of city governments. It's called uh, uh, ICLE Local Governments for Sustainability. We started... Uh, in the late 80s, early 90s, the whole field of urban sustainability, of cities taking on climate change, um, greenhouse gas mitigation, um, and Vancouver has, of course, always been, in uh, Metro Vancouver as well, the regional government and municipalities have been a big leader in that space um, uh, for many decades as well. So I started that organization and built it to be hundreds of cities around the world. It's now more than a thousand cities involved in that. Uh, then got involved in uh, uh, business innovation, focusing on products, working with uh, some of the world's largest companies on new products to address poverty uh, conditions in developing countries. And then got into this field of resilience, largely because I was working with low-income communities around the world who are the most vulnerable in the face of uh, shocks that are, we're familiar with, hurricanes, floods, and things of that nature. But now we have uh, a couple of bizarre ones that have hit our continent in the last decade, the global financial crisis and now a uh, pandemic. So we've, we've been really trying to figure out what urban resilience is and how it is that we can use the occasions of shock events like the one we're suffering now to understand where the vulnerability is and then make investments as we recover in a way that you build a more resilient condition because it's not the last one we're going to be hit with. Is is there just thinking about the idea of urban resilience? Is it presumably it's it's an uh, ongoing project to kind of better the lives of of people? But is there is there something about like are we facing more kind of economic shocks now than we did in the past? Like is this is this a more important project than ever right now? Well, I think we we've come out of a period since. Uh, economies that stabilized um, after World War II of tremendous stability. I mean, we take for granted the stability of the decades that we've lived our lives in. Uh, And it's not just been economic stability relatively, but it's been political, institutional stability, the global world order uh, that was constructed to come out of World War II and the Great Depression has lasted most of our lives. Uh, And we've had uh, environmental stability. So climate was predictable. Insurance companies could write policies to protect you from 100-year storm events. Well, in 10 years, there's going to be events that fall off of that actuarial curve. So now we're in an era, era where there's tremendous unpredictability. Some of it is creative. We've got technology change accelerating uh, tremendously. There are creative aspects of uh, globalization and the way we've rearticulated uh, global production and supply chains, but all of those things create um, yet still not fully un- known vulnerabilities. You know, you put new systems in place and create new interdependencies, and sooner or later you discover what the vulnerabilities are. And so I think we are, because climate is changing, because we're in a globally interconnected economy like we haven't been. Uh, there's political forces that are unwinding inst- the institutional order that's provided us with political and 
and sort of social stability. Um, so we'll have more shock events, and then we have more vulnerabilities that those shock events ripple through. So if, you, if I like to use the analogy, as I have in a paper I've written, of uh, uh, a fault line, something that Vancouverites are familiar with. Um, it, you know, the stress that builds up there leads to a shock event, and then it ripples in all kinds of ways, including through the structures of the buildings that have been built over the last century and, and many other vulnerabilities that, um, uh, you know, regions exposed to those kinds of events are unfamiliar with, economic ones as well. So that's what we're up against. And as we come out of COVID-19, which we will, we have to understand what made our economy most fragile and how do we need to create a new infrastructure of supports and institutions uh, in order to be in a position to not be taken off guard by the next shock that comes at us that way. Jeb, I'm just, just thinking, why is it so important to look at the municipality level? So in a way, cities and municipalities were just, in my career, it was a horse I selected back in the 1980s when I started working with city governments at that time, mostly in the United States, because the problems that were emerging in the world, uh, refugee crises, uh, you know, early signals of global climate crisis, other environmental problems that back then it was the ozone layer depletion. The effects of all these things were showing up in our cities. And it was at a time, so ur people have been urbanizing in the world since at a rapid rate since the 1950s. And so trend lines were very clear that the world's population and therefore the world's economy and the world's sources of pollution because production was all going to end up more and more concentrating in cities. And it wasn't until the decade of the 2000s that um, I put it uh, a bit tongue in cheek this way, that the world discovered the existence of cities. So we started hearing about half the world's people living in cities and mega cities, but it was very clear back in the 70s and 80s that this is how the world was going to be organizing itself. And so these days, um, not only are the majority of people living in cities, but that global economy we refer to at, in very abstract terms, it is economy that's structured in supply chains that go city to city to city. The Port of Vancouver is a critical infrastructure, not just for Canada, right? It's a critical infrastructure for North America's economy. Um, and so it was important to me as I got more involved with global environmental issues in the 1980s and reached out to the United Nations at that time, UN Environment Program, to figure out what, you know, what could be done at this sort of more grassroots level, is to figure out how we create relationships between municipality, city governments, um, and uh, national and international governments so that when you negotiate a climate agreement, it's very clear how that has to trickle down to what cities need to do to deal with their energy efficiency, uh, with their fuel sources, all those things that are essential for achieving anything on a global scale. Well, maybe thinking uh, at, at both the, the local city level um, in Canada and I guess North America, but also at the national level, just taking a step back, Jeb, what are your thoughts on, on how Canada has fared so far uh, in facing the, the COVID-19 challenge? Well, the first thing I'd say about Canada is that the leadership of Canada, I mean, there is an institutional stability here, a political one, that we're not seeing south of the 49th. Um, and it's very stark. 
um, remarkably so. So you see across the parties that they are aligning around a common program. And of course, you know, every party in, uh, uh, in the minority has to have an alternative thing that they say they would do. But I'm being here in Ontario, we're seeing a tremendous cooperation between the uh, progressive conservative government and even the new democratic party um, around what needs to happen. So that's, says a lot about for Canada. Um, in terms of the response measures uh, to deal with the economic shock, again, it's a tremendous contrast that the federal government here understands that it's efficient and productive for the economy to not put the burden on businesses to have to lay off their workforces, throw people out into an un unemployment pool, which then falls on the public purse. Um, and then those people have to find their way back into economy and businesses, especially small businesses, have to figure out how to re-staff up. So if you want to have a, an efficient recovery as much as you can after a crisis of this nature, keeping people on salary, on payroll, um, is both better for the people and is better for the business. And then the other aspect that is related to that, of course, is the focus on small business and um, the Americans are still working on figuring, uh, coming to understanding that the foundation of their economy is still small business in a, in a world that's enamored to Silicon Valley and everything of that nature in Boeing <laughs> uh, aerospace, uh, as another example that will get a bailout. But focusing on the foundation of uh, the small business sector in Canada and the U.S. is fundamental. That, that is our resilience. Um, and Small business is not only the source of that resilience because it employs so many people, it is the engine of new job creation, it is often the engine of, of innovation as well, um, be, but it's because that's where people go, um, not only to get their groceries, but it's where they go and they meet their neighbors. It's where they, small businesses are known to help out, whether it's to support the hockey league in the best of times, or whether it's to deliver groceries to um, people who are homebound uh, in the worst of times. So um, I, I feel extremely positive about the way the Canada's responded, especially particularly um, contrast to the United States and some other countries. Yeah, it's the funny. The I, president of Brazil is still denying that COVID is even a problem. So it could be much worse. I, you know, it's funny when you think about Justin Trudeau, uh, whether you like him or not, um, he has some foils that he can kind of point to around the world to make him yeah. look pretty. He's, he looks he's like quite the statesman right now. <laughs> yeah, that's quite true. But, you know, I'll, I'll tell you, uh, Premier Ford is looking like quite the statesman right now, too. Right. Um, so, I mean, that's people have risen to this place of political leadership in the United States. We have this contrast of Governor Cuomo, who, you know, compared with the. Uh, President Trump just shows up as the kind of presence of leadership that we need. And I think we've got a, a better supply of it here. So, so, so you've talked, uh, you've kind of briefly mentioned small business as part of, as a, as a fundamental component to, to uh, this idea of the resilient economy. Um, maybe can we talk a little bit more about what a resilient economy coming out of COVID-19 actually, like, what does it actually look like? What is it, what, what are the steps we need to put into place? So um, every city in any case, or every regional government um, needs to look at uh, where the biggest cascading 
failure uh, has shown up. And we won't really, the cascading is only just beginning, right? So yes, uh, businesses are closed and now we're going to, now we have businesses that aren't paying their rents and that's going to impact people who have invested in property. It's going to impact the way property finance might continue after the fact. Um, uh, we don't know what's going to happen to the restaurant business if you're in commercial real estate um, and you're, or even if you're in mixed use real estate and you've got a ground floor where it's typically restaurants and cafes and things like that. How is this experience going to change not only what people, how much they show up at the restaurant and the cafe again after they've, they've gotten better coffee makers sent to them by Amazon uh, during the crisis itself, whatever. But, you know, in what ways are restaurants going to have to, um, you know, buffer themselves in the future to shock events of this nature? So there's all kinds of cascading effects. And I, and I was just on a call with U.S. colleagues today that no one really has the answer. We're all on a learning curve to figure out where those vulnerabilities at the end of the day prove to be greatest. I think that um, where it's clear among all of us that the small business world has only begun to see the extent of, of shocks. Um, as you're very familiar with, and particularly in the United States as well, small business has already been suffering tremendously um, vis-a-vis online retail uh, and the global supply chains that online retail uh, allow, uh, provides um, in prime locations in cities. Small business rents are very high, so that's another pressure on them. And then small business people oftentimes don't have this good business continuity planning. Uh, they're, they're not companies. They're sole proprietorships. There's all kinds of family issues. Um, so uh, the whole sector, I think, deserves a look as to how we can help small business people understand uh, their vulnerabilities, how to build business continuity plans, and think not just how to recover from this crisis, but long term, um, how they're going to secure the asset that is their small business and take it through the life cycle of operations until they pass it on to their children or sell it, whatever the case may be. And that's something that the real estate sector has a tremendous, you know, there's an interdependency there, right? Um, so small business is an ecosystem that includes the property side, that includes the proprietor and the supplier to the proprietor, and it includes all the households in that market catchment area. And that's why I anchor my argument on the recovery that we need to renew this concept that is you know, still very current in the greater Vancouver area of complete communities. We need to understand that small business is part of a node of uh, commercial and social life. Um, and the, as residents change, as there's secession and demographics within neighborhoods, the small business community has to be supported to go along with that. There shouldn't be a 10 year lag between there being, I live in the old Greek community of Toronto. It's actually been a 20 or 30 year lag between this old Greek small businesses who kept selling things to an older Greek population demographic that had long moved to the suburbs north of Toronto and a younger demographic or a, you know, downtown a Bay street, more oriented demographic that wanted to buy other things. And so I think, how do we support small businesses to make the adjustments to have market, the kind of market data, the market research that large companies have that allow them to be productive and competitive in the world? That'll be a big piece of it.
So if I understand, and I, I think we're, like we were talking earlier um, about, there's a, a journalist here, Frances Bueller, who writes for the Globe and Mail and others. Mm-hmm. And she said, she made a point on Twitter, you know, uh, think about who you're supporting during this lockdown because the world that you emerge, you know, when you emerge back into the world, that's going to have an impact on, on what the world looks like. And I think it was a really kind of smart way of framing it. Mm-hmm. Um, but in terms of how do, I guess, how do we make a cultural shift, right? Because like in the paper that we read of yours, you're talking about, um, you know, the multiplier uh, effect of, of money in a local community. And, and when money stays in the community, as opposed to goes to Amazon or, or wherever it, at a moment in which there is, you know, people are worried about their mortgages. People are worried about their rent. People are going into presumably further debt. Like how do we make that shift to, to maybe not the race to the bottom of the Walmart kind of model to a more kind of local sustainable model that you're talking about? Yeah. So the reason I call that model an infrastructure that we're building is, is that look, I'm, Walmart and Amazon's they're optimizing value for consumers tremendously. That's why, you know, I've worked on with main street, small business communities and trans transitioning communities and lower income communities and have done the customer surveys um, of the erstwhile, the former customers of these small main street businesses. And it's amazing the extent to which people, even low income people, both because it's a, of the experience and the aspiration and also of the price and the quality and the choice that's available when they go to a shopping mall or they go to Amazon. So obviously there's value that's created there, but that value doesn't provide the infrastructure that a society needs to get through a shock. And that infrastructure is uh, a place where there's social cohesion and social relationships and a kind of co- community service orientation. And that's where small business has always played. Uh, And I guess the question is then, how can we economically better recognize that value that is beyond the value of the milk that I can pick up there or, um, you know, whatever it is, the better coffee I can get down the street at this, at the small business cafe. um, That is a value that they serve as kind of a community infrastructure. There's I mentioned cafe, there's a cafe, pub in my neighborhood that I refer to and many people do now as our community, it's our neighborhood living room. It's where we meet each other. There are people who work there. It's where all, all generations meet up there. And it's very typical of the kind of small business life you'll see in European cities that we all love to go to in the summertime for our holidays, where um, you know multi-generational people are always mixing and out in the square on a weekend night. So there's that dynamic in our cities here in Canada as well. And so to get directly to your point, if we're going to economically value that infrastructure that's there, that stabilizes neighborhoods and provides service in, in the face of crisis, we need to make sure that there are established backup funds for those businesses in the instance of future shocks. And there's a wonderful paper that's been put out by Bruce Katz, one of the leading urbanist, uh, urban policy thinkers in the United States, um, around these what's called local relief funds. So more and more cities have been setting up using uh, public sector funny, uh, funding, uh, charitable money, and some private sector contributions uh, 
rainy day funds to support small business communities in the instances of shocks, and also through major transitions that happen um, in those areas. So that's something that um, we didn't think was a necessary ingredient of having a good local uh, local economy um, that I think we do need to think about for this century and the century of shocks. Um, we, we also have to, you mentioned the local money multiplier. Um, it's been kind of a French thing, this idea of, uh, they, it, they call them alternative currencies, but they're comp the better word that's used these days is complementary currencies. So how do we, just like uh, neighborhood institutions and churches and YMCAs uh, become a place where people can provide support and have yard sales and barter services to one another, complementary service, uh, currencies are a way that you can sort of sign up and become a dedicated customer to your your village uh, small business ecosystem. And these are cropping up more and more. And we, we started working within Resilient Cities Catalyst with one that is now supported by a venture capital firm. So there are now um, for-profit local currency creation companies. This one's called Kolu, C-O-L-U. And they have an added value feature in that they not only uh, create this currency that allows people to get a, uh, a Kolu coin in exchange for providing services or to buy coins so that they can, you know, shop locally and support local businesses. But also the city can contribute coin to local citizens who participate as volunteers in implementing city programs and initiatives. So in a way, what the complementary currency does is it says value is how we support one another and volunteer for one another. And value is what we buy and make for one another. And that's the infrastructure that allows a local economy to function. And what the Amazon world does is says value is the right price point and the convenience of the shop, but it's not about all that other social stuff that we need to get by. And, and so it, it's recognizing the value of the social component that's especially important when we're going through a crisis. I feel like I, I'm asking all the questions here, but uh, do you? I I got a couple more, Adam. But do you want to? No, go ahead. I was just thinking. So, I mean, in in your paper, you you focus on kind of areas that are that have faced deindustrialization, kind of more depressed communities. Vancouver is obviously. I think there's some similarities across all communities here, especially with levels of debt and. Um, and uh, potentially stagnant wages in certain sectors, that type of thing. But we're definitely in a, um, I, would, I wouldn't put us in the same league, but it seems like to me when I, going on what you just said, like the, it's almost like a hollowing out of that, that local thriving community in certain areas that I don't think we've seen in places like Vancouver. Can you maybe speak to the differences between, say, the Hamiltons, uh, not to single out any community, uh, and I think Hamilton's doing quite well right now, is my understanding. But the Hamiltons of the world, or the Reginas versus the versus the Vancouver's or the Toronto's. Yeah, so uh, Vancouver has a very different set of stresses. Absolutely right. Of course, Vancouver went through a cycle of having to remediate brownfield sites and um, uh, to replace declining industries in the resource sector and build up its service economy. Um, 
and it's come through that. And then it got some help from a country called China in terms of uh, investment flows coming in. Uh, but it's done a lot to pull itself up too, in, in all due credit, um, including to the to the property sector in Vancouver. But the stress, I, I haven't studied all of the latest uh, socioeconomic stresses in Vancouver, um, but one that is common with the United States is the the current new newly forming households, the younger generation, are incredibly stressed out by uh, the uh, declining affordability of housing and just living in general in Vancouver. Uh, and so having just looked at the U.S. numbers, you know, among the demographic in, in their 20s, m- most are in debt. And in the 30s, they have marginal savings, very marginal savings. I saw, so just in this, the, uh, on, in your paper, it was $7,500, I think the average 30-year-old has, and, and the, in the early 20s, it's, it's potentially negative? It's, it's uh, zero to negative in, in the 20s. Incredible, and the, yeah. and the, this was just looking at this segment of the economy. So in my paper, what I do is I sit, look at moderate to lower income households and really explore how much of the U.S. gross domestic product are those households accountable for? So these are American households that, you know, all the members together earn less than $70,000 a year. So average adult income of $35,000 a year. It's not a great income, right? So moderate to low. They account for 27% of gross domestic product in the United States. Business investment accounts for 18%. All business investment in the United States accounts for 18% of the gross domestic product. So if we're not paying attention to these moderate to lower income households and understanding what new stresses are coming on them, um, we are not prepared for the shocks that result in uh, sudden losses in household wealth or losses in household income, just like in the global financial crisis um, uh, in the last decade. So one of the stress points in the greater Vancouver area is, of course, the newly forming households, which, of course, are in tremendous concern for the housing sector. Um, who are you? Who is the real estate sector going to be building households for and sell, trying to sell households to? when your emerging demographic that is going to become your, your majority within 10 to 20 years um, is, uh, has such a poor balance sheet. Um, so that would be a particular area to look at and figuring out how. Also, how do you design uh, neighborhoods? How do you design um, uh, uh, street-level uh, commercial spaces and house, houses themselves for this new um, a gig economy work life where more and more people are working from home, working remotely becomes another issue as well. So that I'm sure the property sector and you've got some very innovative uh, developers there in the Vancouver area is really tracking these demographics and, and uh, trying to figure out what it's going to demand of them. But you could look at that. We also have an aging population uh, in Vancouver and all Canadian cities. It's at the other end of that spectrum that has a fixed income. Uh, that doesn't have many solutions um, to deal with any kind of economic shock. Do you think, just thinking kind of more broadly, we've been talking a little bit on the program about, um, you know, uh, the rise of nationalism, uh, the seeming push away from kind of the the last 30, 40 years uh, of kind of 
cosmopolitanism and, and globalization. Do you see what you guys are talking about, about kind of really focusing in on small business and local economies as kind of, um, you know, part of a larger move away from, from globalization? Uh, I know I don't, I see it as, um, I think all of the, all of the policy focus has been on uh, fair trade and globalization and liberalization of markets. And so we've shifted tremendous resources in favor of that segment of our national economies um, and have ignored the importance of what isn't so sexy, but is in many respects more essential, which is the ground level economies within our, in, within our cities and neighborhoods. So I just think this is a prime moment to sort of re-elevate the centrality of that. It's staring us in our faces today. Um, and I started uh, writing and speaking about this when in the United States, the first uh, support package was being debated in the U.S. Senate and big numbers were already being cast about about how Boeing was going to get um, a substantial bailout. And at that time, there was nothing being talked about for the small business community. I mean, the, the, an adjustment's been made there, but our experience in 2008, 2009, 2010 in the global financial crisis um, is, is that the large corporate sector is what got um, the too big to fail companies got most of the attention. And when it came to households and uh, household bankruptcy and mortgage defaults, there is nothing but really an awkward solution offered to help them recover. And for that reason, we have uh, still a declining home ownership rate, uh, probably in Canada and the United States. Um, and people haven't really covered from the debt um, load that they ended up having once when their household equity collapsed in the financial crisis. So this time we have to make up for what we ignored the last time. Do you think that the uh, the financial stimulus from the Liberal gov- government for small business has been sufficient? See, this is where I think we're going to be uh, learning. Um, just how much of a shock, how much does this ripple down into um, different components? The small business sector is, is, many, is a many-headed beast, obviously. Um, which of the subsectors within that are going to be hurt the most. And I kind of feel like asking you guys, because you're at the ground level and your, your constituents are in the commercial property space and are, are property owners. Like what's being felt uh, among property owners in Vancouver as people are being told that they can't pay their rents? And do they have, do, is there a sense that this is just a couple of months of, of loss that they have to absorb? Or are they actually starting to talk about good, significant long-term vacancies that they're going to have to contend with. There seems to be a lot contingent on a, a potential second wave and, uh, you know, going, moving back into isolation um, in the fourth quarter uh, that, that, that concerns people, right? Because I mean, if at least in Vancouver, I, I, I feel the sense that um, people are anticipating that it could be kind of May, June, that the economy starts to come back, uh, obviously not uh, not at full speed, but but people starting to get back to back to business, uh, not quite as usual, but to some extent. Um, but it, it could be, I think, quite crippling if uh, you know if we hit a second wave in, in the fall, and um, you know it's it's months over months of of people remaining in isolation. I would imagine. 
at least that's what I get from talking to people in the commercial space. And, and is there a sense um, that there will be a decline in value and balance sheet value of commercial properties as a result of this? Is this just an income statement problem or uh, is there a fear that there will be some deflation in the property market there and the commercial property market in particular? Well, you know, we, so Adam and I both work in residential. We just had a, a, a somebody on who owns a commercial brokerage. Um, yeah. And, and I mean, that was my sense that, uh, you know, he was talking about kind of a new normal where instead of, you know, a hundred people at tables in the, in the small restaurant that pays it very high rents to operate in Yale town or wherever they do here in Vancouver, that, that the model, at least for the next couple of years is going to shift to kind of uh, uh, not as many people dining at the same time or interested in dining at the same time. And, and then the kind of ripple effects through that market Um I mean, I, what we've talked about more than anything is, you know, and, it, and I think it's interesting because Vancouver is so service oriented, right? Like the, the cruise ship industry brings in, in the summer, millions of dollars a week in, into the economy, right? So if that's not here um, and the, the tourism goes away, like what, is this, what does this actually look like, right? It's, uh, it's, it's pretty terrifying because I think even if, at least my understanding from where we are in Vancouver is we're doing quite well in relation to a lot of other places. And we've really kind of planked the curve or flattened the curve, however you want to say it. Mm -hmm. But what that looks like, I think the kind of quasi business as usual is, you know, hopefully we can have people in our backyard to have a drink, like not necessarily that we're going back to, uh, to uh, a crowded bar or concert or anything anytime soon. And especially with international travel, uh, I think that's not on the table for the time being. So I'd imagine it's going to have some pretty massive effects here. Yeah. So tourism, conference business, uh, your hotel business. I mean, that that itself, when you come to the question is, is the federal government money going to be enough? That's a sector that's probably going to uh, suffer uh, for a longer period of time. Um, the local restaurants, they can reduce the, They can spread tables out more. Um, they can also do delivery. So I think we're going to see more and more innovation right. in sort of localized delivery services. I have lived in New York City for the preceding three years, and it's amazing the extent to which um, bicycle food delivery has taken over. Of course, it's Manhattan but um, and very dense. But um, one can envision some solutions for the restaurateurs who serve that local consumer market catchment. Um, but the ones that are down on the waterfront that are serving the tourists are going to be uh, much, much harder hit. Yeah. I, you know, another aspect I address in my paper is how there's been kind of a, a separation uh, in many cities between those who are in local economic development and are really thinking about what sectors to attract, what kind of businesses to attract, where to, and what kind of infrastructure and redevelopment needs to take place to create new business clusters. Um, and those who have been focused in on resilience and sustainability matters. And uh, I did some work with, with the city of St. Louis when they were preparing their new economic development strategy. Now, St. Louis has uh, got large pockets that are disinvested. It's one of those classic deindustrialized cities. But they're also been a center for the aerospace industry and they're a, a, a commercial airplane hub. They've got other they've got a great startup community. But they're developing a new strategy. And I said, what we need to do now is figure out how to 
um, factor much more risk assessment in the context of analyzing what business sectors they would be, have locational advantages for. So uh, at RCC, we've developed a whole set of ways that within the standard way that local economic development strategies are prepared, you can do that kind of risk and vulnerability assessment so that you can target your resources uh, to sectors that are um, less vulnerable to the things that uh, Vancouver would be exposed to, which is quite different than the things that uh, Southern California is exposed to, say, with wildfires aren't your problem in Vancouver. You've got another threat, which I don't even want to mention, um, but it's the big one. We actually did mention it earlier, didn't we? Kind of sideways. Um, <laughs> I don't know if I can take even talking about any Yeah, no, I, I, I don't think anyone can talk about it. But, you know, so I think, Economic development strategy is more about the 10 to 20 year time frame of how you're going to build an economy that uh, is more stable. You know, one sector goes down, but there's still enough economic life. Tourism is one of those that's highly vulnerable. It's quite clear. And um, Vancouver has been able to, to thrive quite well on that, uh, as have many other cities around the world. But I think there's going to be a bit of a reset from that. The port is a very inter- a very important part of, of the city and understanding what the vulnerabilities of the port are as it continues to develop and capture more um, market share on the, on the Pacific coast of North America. Uh, so how is resilience being factored into these things um, from a point of view of global economic resilience, not just from a point of view of, of seismic uh, risk and things like that is going to be really important. Um, so that's changing the way that local economic development people will think as well. And while I'm at it, I, a discussion I just came out of, we were talking this through. Um, it's been an, it's expected that this summer is going to be one of the hottest summers in the history of the planet, um, recorded history of the planet again. Uh, we work a lot with the counties in Southern California that have had wildfires in the last uh, two seasons. Uh, so there's a great concern that on top and perhaps even during uh, COVID-19's second lap, there will be a, a wildfire season and many displaced people. And now what do you do with displaced people who have to be sheltered together when there's an, a pandemic going on? Um, in other parts of the country, we work with Tampa, Florida. There could be a very strong hurricane season. So we really now have to start thinking through um, multiple shocks at the same time. And of course, we're not ready for them <laughs> um, any more than we're ready for this one. But all the more reason, I argue, that every dollar that's now flowing into some kind of recovery effort has to also be leveraged in a way that it builds a longer-term resilience. It can't just minimize the immediate shock that's happened. It has to think about how to buffer against all those cascading uh, impacts and how they interact with other things that may come our way. Uh, and there's no easy answer to that. Um, it's an exercise now everyone has to go through. And to your question about whether the recovery funds are yet enough, let's hold off and see whether the dollar amount is sufficient. But what is clearly not sufficient is that we're just thinking dollars. We're not thinking about how to leverage those for multiple benefits. And that's what we were working with the city of Vancouver on um, with the chief resilience officer there. Uh, working under the city manager is this is now specifically the city, not not metro, of course, but really to understand, begin to understand what are the interdependencies and interactions between all these things. So my guess is there's something in the city's resilience strategy that can be um, 
it hasn't been published for long, so it doesn't need to be too dusted off, but there are things there, there's groundwork already that's been made that can be built upon as you think about that recovery process. Jeb, are, are you optimistic that we can learn these lessons quick enough, uh, given <laughs> from given the shocks that we've had and, and the, the shocks coming up? I mean, are you an optimistic person knowing what you know about the resilience? Um, well, for me, optimism is um, there's there's a scientific answer to that question or an objective answer to that question. And then there's a, uh, a sort of a personal mission oriented answer to that question. I think the only good way to live is to wake up in the morning optimistic that there's something more that can be done today that will improve the situation or contribute to the improvement of the situation. And to, to not start the day that way is to, you know, undermine one's professional success and personal happiness. Scientifically, uh, I think uh, I've been saying to, even to my sons, this is dress rehearsal. The global financial crisis was dress rehearsal. Uh, Hurricane Sandy, uh, I worked in Puerto Rico on the recovery uh, strategy for Puerto Rico after Maria. Um, those storms are dress rehearsals. This is a dress rehearsal event regarding global health challenges. Um, and so there is an urgency to building this infrastructure I've been referring to that is both social and economic. Um, because as in particular, uh, climate change accelerates. And I'll go back to what I said earlier about the last um, five decades of the, of the 20, 20th century and, and the first of this one. Um, to have an economy within a world where there's tremendous environmental stability, all of your resources are predictable to you and weather is predictable to you, um, fire risk, pestilence is predictable to you. These things are now becoming unpredictable in ways. We don't even know how fast climate change is going to accelerate and impact uh, agriculture in this country. Um, so, uh, and you've seen it uh, in the forest industry in British Columbia, how much the ability of just one pest to reproduce one more uh, cycle within uh, a season, how big an impact that has on the industry. So we're just beginning to see the disruptive impacts of a destabilization of global climate and all of the environmental repercussions from that. So scientifically, it's hard to be optimistic that we aren't going to be an extremely destabilized um, society uh, in the years to come. But let's be optimistic. You know, back to my opening point, um, you know, the culture of Canada, um, even the politics of Canada, of all things, has shown a resilience to sort of stay focused in on what the challenge is, come up with solutions, um, move things forward, learn from what's working, what's not working, and, um, you know, uh, you know that keep putting the appropriate measures in place. But that has to happen at the federal level, at the provincial level, and at the local level, and at the neighborhood level. Uh, and so I keep coming back because it's been my career to focus at the local and the neighborhood level. We can't ignore that level of the infrastructure and the response. Well, maybe maybe we'll leave it there, Jeb. But um, on on an optimistic note, and uh, but we we do have this segment called the Five Wire, which is five quick questions. Can you can you stick around for that? Yeah, all right, shoot. Uh, and you know you know Vancouver quite well. 
Because we can, uh, yeah, yeah. I've been, didn't you say I've your not son lived in Vancouver, but I've worked with Metro and with the city. Yeah. Okay, and, and didn't you say your son went to UBC? I think. Yeah, he started that. engineering at UBC, and then he um, he's finishing up at U of T, but he's worked for a year at RDH, one of the great uh, building science firms in the country, and based in Vancouver. Right. Right. Um, yeah, we're very familiar with RDH. Just yeah, I was saying. The depreciation report uh, <laughs> company. <laughs> yeah, yeah, is that right? Yeah. Um, so, first question is, what is your favorite neighborhood in Vancouver? Oh goodness, um, Stanley Park. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, no, I mean, really, I, I, I when I'm in Vancouver, um, I'm typically st- staying downtown, uh, and I. I be lying to your beautiful natural assets. That's what a lot of people do there, including a lot of Vancouverites. So let me leave it at that. <laughs> the, the second one might be a little bit more challenging, actually. It's favorite bar or restaurant. Uh, presumably, you're a, you're the type of guy who likes the local haunts. I like a local craft beer. So um, I wouldn't know. I don't know if it's my favorite, and I'm not remembering the name. But the last time I uh, was in Vancouver, I took the ferry i commuted on the ferry over to uh north van and right at the ferry area there's a a cluster a a commercial space with lots of restaurants and things like that and there's a craft brewery there you'll have to fill in the blank on the name but um you know what what i love about vancouver and i can say the same thing about my neighborhood in toronto is uh that kind of craft um uh, production economy has come back up and of course it's uh, favoring a certain demographic that that loves these things but uh it's it's love it's great to come to vancouver there's always a new one to explore right. do you have a favorite place in toronto that 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 you want to highlight uh i love living in our neighborhood in toronto because just about everything that you want is within a, a five to ten minute walk there's a little uh, craft brewery uh, on the laneway uh, in Toronto in an old industrial building called left field. And, um, it's very casual. It's kind of a garage space. Um, but it's just a great kind of neighborhood, uh, gathering place. We have a, um, a neighborhood, uh, group here called uh, Monday night beer league, uh, that one of the neighbors has organized. And so every other Monday night, we have a walking crowd that can go off within a short order to the Monday night craft. That's a great We're idea to be drinking on Monday nights, but um, uh, <laughs> that's what beer league is all about. So yeah, it's one of the, one of the pleasures here. Oh, is, oh. It, is it a con? Is it a contest or is? It, it's just, no, it's just it, it's actually it is actually part of the, our. It, it's with the intent of local money multiplier, like to get oh, people nice. together and get out on Monday night, which is a slow night. To support a local uh, craft brewers and the That's restaurants that associated with, right on. and it gets idea. us all out together. Uh, I'm actually, it's a great point on my whole argument, which in a less high-minded way. So, what happens? Neighbors get together. We meet one another. Um, I've met any number of neighbors that I didn't, you know, because there's always turnover. We I have met before. We get to know one another. We get some exercise. We support a local business, and we create some social relations um, that uh, you know get us through. Uh, periods like this where we're all having cabin fever. That's a, that's a, that's a great idea. Yeah. Uh, question three, what is one book that would you, that you'd recommend to, to our listeners? 
Um, I would, uh, I'm reading this one right now. It's called Winners Take All, The Elite Charade of Changing the World. I, I started, um, I'm, it, I have a work in progress, which is about what we've learned about social change in these times, particularly in, dust, in uh, disruptive times. And this book, which is a bestseller, um, really takes on the kind of uh, co-optation of doing good in the world in a way that's really all about, you know, the, the well-off people feeling good about themselves. Um, and it does a, a great critique of a lot of things, some things that I've been involved with myself. So I feel sometimes the critique goes a little bit overboard. <laughs> um, but I think it's worth a read because I, we're, we're living in a time and particularly, um, particularly younger demographics have wired into them that um, doing good in the world and, and living with purpose is part of a professional life, not just of a personal life. Um, but it's very important that we're not just talking the language of change. Like everything these days is revolutionary. Everything's transformative. Um, and it all sounds really great, but a book like this sort of makes us really uh, take pause and understand what it takes to bring about the, the change that we would really like to affect. Um, now we're all going to get a big lesson in it because we have a crisis to recover from. So I think there's going to be a mobilization of people sort of really figuring out how to, how to be uh, relevant in a more grounded way in coming out of this crisis. That was only question three. There's two more. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> question four. These two, unfortunately, aren't quick ones either. But um, what, what is one piece of advice that you'd give your 18-year-old self? My 18-year-old self? Um, don't be 18 again. Um, <laughs> um, it was a nightmare for you too. <laughs> yeah. Life has gotten better. Um, well, I have two sons. They're 20 and 22. So practically speaking, I guess I've kind of been, uh, I'm letting them absorb this and, and watching whether advice is needed. Um, and what's interesting is, I think they somehow younger people, 18 year olds understand this is the world they're growing up in better than older, older people do. Um, they don't have that reference point of those stable decades that I've referred to earlier. And so there's really something about being emotionally prepared for the world that you're living in that makes a difference about whether you're going to survive in it. Well, um, so I guess what I'd say to myself as an 18 year old is, um, get your therapy sessions done early so you can get on with life. How's that? <laughs> <laughs> that is interesting, though, because I, when uh, Greta was in Vancouver, they had yeah. all sorts of things on the CBC um, with interviewing teenagers about climate change. And mm. I, that, that, that actually, what you just said, reminds me of that, that I was struck by how they kind of come to uh, – have a kind of more accepting or definitely more than I did uh, kind of like a realization like this is the world we live in uh, moving forward. It looks like this in a way that, um, yeah, I, I still am having trouble getting my head around, but uh, yeah. One thing that's really, um, I think exceedingly healthy and I was the same as an 18 year old, but um, is, is the anger is is the space they're claiming to express. And, and she does it so well when she stands in front of the world's leaders at the United Nations, go ahead and express that anger because it's a, it's a, 
it's deserved um, and it serves a positive purpose. And final, final question. May we have a drum wall. (laughs) (laughs) What is, what is one thing that you, is something that you've bought in the last year or two for under a thousand dollars that's had a positive impact on your life? Um, A second guitar so that um, I'm not having, uh, I'm into sort of folk music and every now and then I'm, I'm playing a Nick Drake songs now and he has weird tunings so that I don't have to retune my one guitar all the time. That'll be the, our other That's game changer. Mine. That That's resilience. Like have, have a number <laughs> of guitars. So you're ready to play uh, a, a wide repertoire at any particular moment. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so Jim, how, how can people find out more about what you're doing and, and uh, your research and of course, resilient cities catalyst. Yeah, so Resilient Cities Catalyst, we have a, a website, of course, um, www.rcc.city, um, RCC standing for Resilient Cities Catalyst. Um, everything I'm writing these days is going there. I have a book, which I think is still very relevant. I actually did some analysis about the SARS uh, pandemic in that book. It's called Welcome to the Urban Revolution, How Cities Are Changing the World. It's still available on Amazon. It's not available in my local bookstore any longer. That's too bad. And it's, uh, it's also available as an audio book. So I think there's still a lot in that book for people who are um, wanting to learn about cities and the role that cities play in uh, times of uh, change like this um, that is useful reading. Well, fantastic. Th- thanks so much again for your time, Jeb. I think we went longer than I promised we would uh, for sure. But um, Obviously, that was a phenomenal conversation. So we appreciate your time. Thank you, Matt. And Thank insight. Yeah, yeah, that's great. Me. Good luck to you out there. Um, I'll uh, I'll be paying attention to see what gets learned in Vancouver, and um, let's stay in touch. Absolutely. So there you have it, folks. Our discussion with Jeb Brugman founding principle of Resilient Cities Catalyst. Really enjoyed that conversation with Jeb, Matt, and uh, man, I gotta say, like the the dress rehearsal thing really uh, sent me into a, a spiral. You know what? Yeah, that was, uh, I mean, there was some optimistic points there, um, but uh, for the most part, <laughs> uh, you know what, what? What I took away from that more than anything else was support local business, right? Yeah. I mean, um, we've been thinking. I've been thinking a lot about that. We've talked a little bit about it on the podcast, but resilient cities are are grounded in in local businesses. And I really like that point about um, when I said and and just to to get Jeb's thoughts on it. You know, w- when things cost a little bit more at your local store as opposed to at Costco or at Amazon or or whatever, uh, you know, how do you how do you get around um, just the race to the bottom chasing prices and and i think he answered that perfectly saying there's value mm-hmm. there's value in paying that extra there, there's definitely some social value there um and it was no that was a that was a phenomenal conversation I, I i learned a lot and uh i think if we put some of that into place i'm optimistic about the future of vancouver i you know what this thing this whole covid19 thing if if it's done anything for me it's it's made me uh recognize how strong the community around us is um you and i both live in east vancouver i feel like 
some of the local businesses here are thriving right now. Um, I spoke to a few people um, that own various businesses, um, one small local convenience store or convenience store and uh, uh, another was a microbrewery in town and uh, they're both super busy they've seen an outpouring of support people um, using their services they're they've pivoted to delivery now and uh, and they're just getting a ton of support from the community so I'm so happy to see that and uh, I think Jeb is absolutely right some of my best memories of, of living in Vancouver are always kind of the the mom and pop shops um, you know in my community or the or the uh, locally owned restaurants and uh, let's continue to do our part yeah yeah no kidding it's uh, absolutely the community community is built around uh, these businesses and actually now thinking about it this idea that Jeb uh, practices in Toronto where a Monday night, beer night at a local brewery seems like something that uh we ought to consider uh maybe organize or at least thinking about in the future because that's uh, let's put it out uh, i love that idea let's put it out I love that east idea. east van pub night i really need a night out. yeah when when all yeah. this ends yeah no here let's commit to it right now when all this ends let's do an east van brewery night and you know what? Maybe we'll do it more than once a week. <laughs> we'll do it. We'll do it. Here's the thing. We'll do it seven nights a week. <laughs> no. Set up an office. No, no. But honestly, but we, we should think about that. I mean, honestly, we should really think about getting getting a, a bunch of people together and... Uh, and uh, going out for a beer on a Monday night—that sounds—that sounds, that sounds f- fant- like a fantastic idea right yeah. now. Perfect, perfect. Well, um, I, the other, the last thing before we cut for the day, Matt, we are hiring at Scalina Real Estate. Um, and so, if you are an agent, so the the, the real thing is, you got to be licensed, or you have to be almost licensed. You got to be in the process. Get in touch with us. Uh, we've got a fantastic opportunity. Um, we are looking to take on an agent for the balance of uh, the year and foreseeable future. So if you are interested, definitely get in touch. And Matt, how can people get in touch with you? You can get in touch with me if you're interested in that opportunity or if you're interested in anything at all real estate related or otherwise, Resilient Cities or anything else. But you can give me a call at 778-847-2854 or matt at vancouverrealestatepodcast.com. Or you can try me at 778-866-4574 or adam at vancouverrealestatepodcast.com. And before we get to that secret line, we should say as well, uh, we haven't been plugging our website uh, lately during the COVID, but uh, the COVID uh, crisis here. And I do want to say vancouverrealestatepodcast.com. That's where all the resources are. That's where all the back catalog is. There's a ton of information and resources and all things good over at vancouverrealestatepodcast.com. But we also got that secret line. Yes, we do have that secret line. And if anyone has seen or heard of secret uh, or or has any idea on his whereabouts, um, info at vancouverrealestatepodcast.com. We miss you, Secret, but uh, we'll be back next Wednesday. We're moving back to the old schedule of one episode a week. We got a couple in the can here. They're very, very good. Very excited about that. So stay tuned. We'll be back next week and uh, stay safe, everyone. Yeah, Cameron McNeil next week. It's a good one. Take care. Two thousand faces for radio. Subscribe today.
Hey everyone, pardon the interruption. We just want to take a quick minute to thank the following sponsors who make this show possible. We want to take a minute to tell you about Holy House, a nonprofit organization that provides community building programs and tenant support services to low-income seniors, veterans, families, and vulnerable residents in the downtown east side and across the lower mainland. Melissa from our team has been volunteering at Holy House. Melissa, what's been your experience? Honestly, it's been so fulfilling just to spend a few hours a week in the community and watch how the staff really transforms these vulnerable communities from the inside out, starting with just small things, right? Playing games, drinking coffee, having some simple conversations that you wouldn't necessarily think are super fulfilling. And you come out just feeling like you've really made an impact and connected with the community. And you've been to multiple buildings, but you're playing games, drinking coffee. Yeah. You know, serving food sometimes. And you made some friends along the way. I've made some friends along the way. It's really helped me be more present, actually, in those moments of just, you know, realizing how simple life can be to make an impact, right? Fantastic. And if you want to learn more, you can definitely check out Jenny Conkin, co-founder of Holy House, who is a past guest fan favorite on the show, or head over to holyhouse.ca where you can donate or volunteer. And they're looking for both donations and they definitely like volunteers. That's holyhouse.ca. Vancouver needs your help. Be part of the solution. We are also sponsored by Oakland Realty. This is our real estate brokerage, best brokerage in the city, hands down. If you are in the industry, a new agent, an aspiring agent, somebody just looking to make a change, new culture, new energy, new resources, head over to oakland.com slash join, type in VRP 2020. That's oakland.com slash join, type in VRP 2020. Not only do you get to meet Michael Morgan and the gang, the big wigs over at Oakland, you get a huge incentive for first going to oakland.com slash join, typing in VRP 2020. <laughs> 